Well, tonight, tonight we enter into Galatians chapter 2. And as I was reading that and looking at that to prepare for tonight, one of the words that jumped out at me was the word grace. Paul talks a lot about grace in this chapter as Pastor Kerry is going to unpack that. And so this evening, I encourage you to think about God's incredible grace because it's by grace through our faith that we are saved and that we're able to be part of the kingdom of God and his kids. So I invite you to stand and let's sing about his amazing grace.
for your amazing grace that allows us to come into your presence. It gives us that hope like no other. No matter what's going on in our lives, we can put our trust in you. We can put our faith in you. Knowing that Jesus, we are cared well. thank you that you took us when we were but nothing but broken vessels and you put us back together and you've made us something new and we know that you will continue to do that work in our lives until that day that we see you face to face and so we thank you for your amazing grace pieces broken and scattered in mercy gathered mended and torn empty handed but not forsaken I've been set free I've been
for changing our lives. Thank you for doing that new creation in us. We worship you. We adore you this evening. Amen. Our study question as we turn here. When is grace enough? Think about it. I like that. Always. Always enough. There are so many times we try to complicate faith. We try to complicate this faith journey. Making it more difficult than it, than it really needs to be. We try to add things to the gospel that really never should be added to that. And as we come to this section here in Galatians, Paul is still writing this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, in that whole area, places where he has already started churches in Lystra and Derby and, and so on within that place. And he's, he's combating the Judaizers, the zealous Jews that were coming up behind him and undermining his ministry. Now, how were they undermining his ministry? Well, what they were saying was, well, Paul's not really an apostle, and, and he really doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's not giving you the whole truth. In fact, if you really want to be a, a good Christian, a, a good Christian, then, then yeah, okay, you're, you, you can believe in Jesus and he died on the cross for your sins, but you really need to obey all the Jewish ceremonial law, if you really want to be good. And the difficulty is, anytime you add something to the gospel, what happens to the gospel? It becomes false. It becomes heresy. There, there is no gospel plus. There, there is no and. For example, if you remember the conversion of the Philippian jailer, and he says in Acts 16, verses 30 to 31, says, and after he brought him out, and this is Paul meeting with him, the, the jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, what's not in this passage? What's not in this passage, and Paul didn't say, believe and be circumcised and you'll be saved. Believe and abstain from non-kosher foods and you'll be saved. Uh, believe and, and stand on your head three times and pat your belly and you'll be saved. You can't add anything to the gospel which is based on a grace gift. And there is no works that could be added to it that is going to make salvation happen. It truly is a grace gift. And, and Paul's combating this thought... And I got to thinking about that as I was studying today. How many times do we just complicate the grace gift of God? And why do we do that? Why do we complicate it? One is we feel that we need to contribute some way. That we, that we need to be able to add to what's been done. And I can tell you this, we can't add anything to what Jesus has already done. Remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. Tetelestai. Done. Paid in full. Complete. And, and what happens is Paul is really defending the gospel. He's defending the, the, the basic element of the gospel that you are saved by grace through faith, not of your works. Not that, it is, that we would be able to boast from that. 
And I want you to think about this. If the gospel is completely a grace gift that is given to us, and it is not dependent on anything that you do or add to it, completely a gift, can you live in freedom? Yeah. Because if there's something that I have to add to it, then I'm not free. I have to work at adding to it or to keep it. But it's a free gift. And so chapter 2 continues Paul's message of what we would call the the law-free gospel. That there is no law added to the gospel. And with this, he's reviewing his meeting with the the leaders here in chapter 2. Because they were questioning his authenticity as, a, as an apostle. And then second, he's going to review a conflict that he had with Peter. With Peter's hypocritical actions within this. And what that does is that really sets the stage as he's going through the history in chapter 1s and 2. Chapter 1s and 2, there's great English. Chapter 1 and 2. Then he sets up for the theology of justification by faith not of works, that he's going to begin in chapter 3, which we'll get to here next week. So let's dive right into chapter 2. In the first 10 verses, really this conflict over circumcision, he says, And then after an interval of about 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of the revelation that I went up, I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running, or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us under bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, or what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcision effectively worked in me also to the Gentiles, When recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So again, and Paul is establishing his credentials As he's writing this letter to the churches that are in Galatia, remember, this is a letter that's going to be read to all of the different house churches that are all around. So you got these Judaizers, these zealous Jews that are coming and say, Paul really is not an authentic apostle. He's not part of the apostles. He's not sent out by the church. He's a renegade. He's running all this. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not true. In fact, out of respect, in verses 1 and 2, he goes up to Jerusalem after being there for 14 years. Now, if you remember, Paul, after getting saved there on the road to Damascus, had gone back to the church leaders there in Jerusalem, introduced himself, did some ministry, and tried to join them. And they went, no, we don't know you that well. You're the guy that kills everybody. You can 
run along now. And so he left and he went to Tarsus. And after going to Tarsus and being there for a while, a revival had broken out in Antioch. Barnabas went up to check it out. And if you remember our studies through Acts, Barnabas went up to check it out in Antioch and said, wow, this thing is big. And he had already met Paul. So he went over and sent word to Tar- for Paul to come out of Tarsus and to come over to Antioch and within this. And so he did ministry there for about 14 years. Now, when we read the Bible, one of the problems is, is we're reading passages kind of on top of each other. And so we don't understand the timeline. And so you've got to think about this. Paul is, has been, it's been 14 years since Paul had gotten saved. And he's been doing ministry and, and people have been getting saved. We don't have a, a lot documented within that 14 years that's in this. But it was a short time in, in the scripture that we're reading within this. Now, if we were to take a look at this visit, it would, it would coincide with Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Because in that time, Paul would have gone back from Antioch and he would have gone to the church elders, which would be James, who was the leader of the church, the brother of Jesus. And it says that I went back to Jerusalem and I went to check my theology, just to make sure we're all on the same page within this. In fact, in Acts 15, 1 and 2, it says this, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. And unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning the issue. What was the theology he wanted to check? What he wanted to check to make sure that his theology was the same as the church was that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. Now, why would he have to check that? Because he says some brothers came and said that circumcision was necessary for salvation. He's like, that ain't right. One of the things that we've got to understand is is if something doesn't seem right, push the pause button and check it out. Find out what's going on. And they'd come in. Now, again, in context, you've got to understand the value of circumcision to the Jewish culture. Circumcision to the Jew was everything. It was part of the Abrahamic covenant. If you were a Jew and you were circumcised, that you were under covenant with God as a Jew, and you were, you were circumcised as a member of God's family, so to speak, within that. So it was everything for them. And this movement of Christianity was a newer movement. You've got to understand that Christianity came out of Judaism. And so these Christian Jews were having a hard time wrapping their head around this law-free gospel. That you can be saved outside of circumcision. That circumcision was not necessary anymore. And so they, they really struggled with that. Have you ever met somebody that was like so old school that they wanted to bring the old school into the new work? When God's doing a new work... He can, he can abandon some of those other things. And, and they didn't really wrap their head around this whole concept with this. And so they showed up in Antioch, and, and Paul and Barnabas said, we need to go meet with the church to make sure we're on the same page. And so he does. And in this meeting within this, Peter declared that the Gentiles were receiving the gospel and they were being saved without circumcision. Which, again, you've got to understand the Near Eastern culture. How did the views Jew view Gentiles? They would call them dogs. 
They thought that they were second-class citizens. They were, they were looked down upon. So the idea that a Gentile would be saved just like a Jew was outside of their concept and their construct. They just couldn't wrap their head around it. How could a Gentile be saved? Just like me? I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm, I'm a child of, of covenant, and they'd be just like me. And so within this, they all got together, and they began to debate with this. How can these people be saved? And how can there be salvation without distinction or prejudice? Now, in our world, are there prejudices? A lot. When I would travel down into Baja, California, when I lived in SoCal and we would go on mission down into Baja um, and we would do ministry down there, it, it was like I went back into, I don't know, like, you know, the 50s, we had the prejudice. But it, it was in the Mexican culture, they had the, they had the Mexicans that were there that were Mexican nationals. And then they had the Awakan Indians out, out of Central uh Central America that was down there from Awaka, and they would come up, but they were always treated poorly. Awakans were, if you've ever been in, in like Tijuana or down in that area, the ladies that are always sitting on the street and they've got the chicle, the little gum, and they got the kids and they're begging, those are Awakan Indians. They're not allowed to own land. They, they have to beg. They're the farm workers. They're, they're treated poorly as second-class citizens, and they're, they're prejudiced. In Israel, there was the Jews, and then there was the Samaritans. They had a prejudice. And if you weren't a Jew and you were a Gentile, that was even worse. So much so, you couldn't even eat with them. And so with all of these things. We have prejudices today in our culture, where we view people as second-class citizens and, and such. And so in their mind, they're really struggling to understand this concept that everybody has the same opportunity for salvation. And that they're all saved by an act of grace that, that is given there. In fact, Acts 15, in that same conversation in the Jewish council, verses 6 to 12, says this. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been such a debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, testifies to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. Note, just as he also did us, and made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put between us and them, I'm sorry, why do you, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way that they are also. And all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It blew their mind. How can a Gentile be saved? How can, how can a Gentile be saved by Jesus the same way? How can their life be the same value as mine? Well, here's the fact of the matter. God values every life valuable. Every life is redeemable. Who are we to say to one person, you're worthy of salvation and you're not? We can't do that. We can't, we can't segregate and, and be prejudiced towards people. We need to share the gospel evenly so that all will come to faith. 
and within this. So as they would debate and they would discuss, and again, we, we're looking backwards on this going, well, duh. Yeah, that should be. But this is all new to them. And they're trying to wrestle with thousands of years of culture and all of these things, trying to figure out. And, and you know, it was much like what happened in the South during the 50s. With, with African Americans being able to ride on the bus and using the same bathrooms and all of these things. We're, we're no different. We get stuck in a cultural norm and we believe that cultural norm is right. We could be wrong. In fact, we are wrong when it comes to Christ because God loves everybody without distinction. He doesn't see color. He doesn't see race. He doesn't see gender. He doesn't see any of these things. So within this, they had to wrestle with how do we navigate these two cultures, the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture, the Jewish culture that grew up with dietary laws and all of these different things that are so much part of, of their life, and the Gentiles who do things so differently than us? How do we navigate that and have unity? Well, we have to talk about it. We have to come to an agreement. And so the, the council would get together in verses 20 to 29 of Acts 15. It says, But we write to them to do this, abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled by blood. So the three things to begin with. What do you do? If it was offered to an idol, don't eat it. If they didn't get all the blood out of it, don't eat it. And stay away from fornication. Three things. Which was part of the, the Gentile culture, and they were okay with it. But the Jewish culture said no, so you stay away from these things. And they go on and said, For Moses and the ancient generations has been in every city who preached him since he has read the synagogues every Sabbath. This seems good to the apostles and the elders and to the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men for the brethren, and they sent the letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders and the brethren go to Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. And since we've heard that some of our members to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words. In other words, that was key. The Judaizers that are causing problems are not from the church in Jerusalem, as they said they were. Within this, and they're unsettling their souls, it seems good to us to have become of one mind to select men to send to you our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seems good to the Holy Spirit to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from the things sacrificed to idols, from the blood, things strangled, and from fornications. And if you keep yourselves free from such things, you'll do good and farewell. Question. Did the Jewish leadership, James, Peter, John, send Paul out? Yes. Did they send him out with a unified instruction? Yes. Was there a unified command within the church? Yes. The Galatians were not being told that. They were being told that Paul was a renegade within this. And so Paul refers to this council and he says, and I went up to the council and this is all stuff that could be checked out. And so from the beginning of this Gentile mission, there was this contention between the Jews and the Gentiles, this conflict. And it was all about how they approach 
grace. Because the Jews wanted to follow the law. And, and they wanted to understand that, yes, I'm saved by grace, but I want to add the law back into it. We have a word for that. It's called legalism. Legalism. Have you ever heard of it? Sure. Where you have certain things that you've got to do. And it, and it conflicts in the church today. This legalist, or, and, and what ends up happening is there's this conflict between the legalists and the liberals. Both extremes on the, uh, and, and I can tell you what, any time you take a, a, an extreme spiritual position, you're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong. If, if you go extreme on the legalism, you're going to be wrong. If you go extreme on the liberalism, you're going to be wrong. You're best to stay in the center of the lane of the gospel. And, and there's this fight that ends up happening between the legalist and the liberal. Who's right? Who's righteous? And what is righteousness by whose standard? Is righteousness by the legalist standard? Is righteousness by the liberal standard? And you get into this debate. What is the best thing you can do? Go back to the Word of God. What does God's Word say? And hold to that. And, and stop judging each other based on what kind of spiritual habits they have. For example, don't judge people on how they dress. For some people, they would come and they would come and worship in a suit. Lord, bless them. Others would come in shorts and bare feet. Lord, bless them. Don't judge them based on how they dress. Don't judge them on, based on, on the holidays that they celebrate. Or, or don't judge people based on the music that they listen to or the type of music that is going on or, or the foods that you eat or the company that you keep. Don't judge people based on that. Because who are you to judge? And by what standard? We're all, all saved by grace. And we all have a faith journey that is, that is unique to us. And we need, to, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And, and to understand that. In fact, in Matthew 15, verses 17 to 20, Jesus says this, Do you not understand that everything that goes into a mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, nah, it doesn't defile a man. The legalist will pay so much attention about looking right. But slander and gossip and vile will come out of their mouth and out of their heart. And they'll appear to be righteous because I obeyed the right things. And Jesus says, no. That's not the way it is. We need to focus on our heart within this. And the problem is, these Judaizers were coming behind Paul and saying, well, we need to focus on the legalism. So in verses 1 and 2, he goes up and he checks himself which I think we always should. When we feel like we're out of line, we need to check ourselves. Whether we're too much liberal, too much legalist, we need to check ourselves against the Word of God. And I believe against leadership 
that we submit to, as Paul was submitting to the leadership of the church. But Paul refused to, and Titus to get into this legalism. He says, but this, but not even Titus, who was with me, thought, though he's a Greek, compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren that came in. So what Paul is, a, is accounting for is that while Paul, Barnabas, and Titus were in Jerusalem at that time, the Judaizers were coming up to Titus and saying, Titus, you need to be circumcised. Titus was a Gentile. Paul's like, no, he doesn't need to be circumcised. Well, he's a Christian. He needs right in the presence of Paul. And they got into this debate over it. Titus was Paul's son in the faith. He was trained up by Paul as a disciple. He was guarding him. He brought Titus, the Gentile, to Jerusalem so that James, Peter, and John and the other church could see a true Gentile that was truly saved. Evidence of this work. But these, these zealots came in and said, you need to be circumcised within this. And it was provoking Paul within this. In fact, it's interesting because in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, Paul reminds him of this in his letter to Titus. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. It didn't stop. They just kept going and kept going and kept going within this. So the circumcision, it was the sign of the covenant that was there. And so Jesus fixed that. How did Jesus fix the, the whole covenant? He instituted a new covenant for the church. In Luke chapter 22, 19 to 20, it says this. And when he had taken some bread and he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given to you. This do, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is what? New covenant. A new covenant. The new covenant of communion was specifically between Jesus and the believers that is there. When we celebrate communion on, on Good Friday, we're going to be celebrating that new covenant within this. And know that that circumcision, though it was an outward covenant based on the law, the new covenant is inward in the heart. In the heart. Question. Who can accurate, accurately judge your heart? Can anybody accurately judge your heart? There's only one. Only one. That's God. You know what that means? You only answer to one. To God. And it's based on that personal relationship. That new covenant relationship that's between you and God. Within that. It's not this outward sign of this, this circumcision that's there. In fact, Paul later at the end of this letter in Galatians 6.15 will say this, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You know what really matters? It's not if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. You know what really matters? Are you born again? Are you a new creation? Has the Holy Spirit entered your heart and given you new life? That's, what's, that's what matters. It's not the outward religious stuff. It's the inwardness of the heart. If you were to examine your heart right now, could you say you're a new creation? Only you know. Only you know. 
Don't let anybody judge you. It's between you and God. And it's that new creation. As, as Paul would say, that circumcision is, is meaningless. So then the question is, okay, if they're making a big deal about circumcision and it doesn't really mean anything, then why not get circumcised? If it doesn't mean anything, just do it and make them happy. Would that be right? No. I mean, after all, shouldn't we defer to the weaker brother on questionable things? Sure. If you have a weaker brother that has a problem with drinking, you don't go drinking in front of him. If you have a weaker brother that, that can't watch TV, then don't watch TV in front of him. Or whatever the case is, if it's a weaker brother, that, that's fine. Why wouldn't you defer to the one that sees circumcision as being the big deal? Because when you add circumcision to the salvation message, you do not defer. If someone says, believe and do this religious practice, do not defer. Do not defer to anybody that's going to add anything to the gospel message. It is Jesus alone within this. Do not ever ever, and hear me clearly, do not ever defer to heresy. Don't defer to heresy. If something is heretical that is being said, say, well, you know what, let's just agree to disagree. No, we're not going to agree to disagree. Because what you're saying is heresy. It'd be like somebody saying, well, you know, Jesus is Lucifer's brother and we need to read out of this extra book and all these other... Let's just agree to disagree. No, I'm sorry, we're not going to. I asked a young guy today to explain, or on Tuesday to explain to me uh, the Trinity. And, and I asked him this question. We're working out a discipleship and I asked him this question. I said, can you be a Christian and not be a Trinitarian? Now, that's going to make your ears smoke for a minute. Can you be a Christian and not be a Trinitarian? And the answer is what? You're thinking, aren't you? Can you be a Christian and not be a Trinitarian? The answer is absolutely no. Why? Because a Trinitarian believes in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, then you can't be a Christian. Because you don't believe in Jesus that, who died on the cross for your sins that was sent by the Father and you don't believe that the Holy Spirit will indwell you and cause you to be born again. So who are the people that don't believe in the Trinity? Those that only name the name of God and don't believe in Jesus or the Holy Spirit at all. And if you remove Jesus and the Holy Spirit, can you have salvation? No. Therefore the answer is what? No, you cannot be a Christian and not be a Trinitarian. You have to be a Trinitarian to be able to understand that. And the Bible teaches that. So that's an example of the heresy. We have to be careful. And I love the fact that Paul says in his letter, he says, I refuse to entertain it for one hour. In other words, I'm not going to give an inch. Now, this is the same guy who says, I'll become all things to all men that I might save some, who says, when it comes to heresy, I will not give an inch. And don't. Paul refused to, to give an inch for one moment when it comes to the purity of the gospel. And, or to give in to this religious or social pressure. 
Luther calls this sanctified stubbornness. I love it. You're stubborn. I'm sanctified in stubborn. <laughs> now, I'm not budging on this. Within this. Because you don't mess with the gospel. There'll be people that will say, for example, you need Jesus and the Mass. Or you need Jesus and add confession. Or you need Jesus and you have to have water baptism. Or Jesus and you have to speak in tongues. Or Jesus and you have to have good works. Whenever you say Jesus and something, do you have another gospel? Yes. It's Jesus alone. And we need to not cave in. And I think it applies especially to Christians today. Do not cave in to what society tells you is appropriate. Or what society tells you you should do when it contradicts the Word of God. You're so old-fashioned. You're so narrow-minded. Yes, I am narrow-minded. When it comes to the Gospel... Straight is the way and narrow is the gate, and few are that find it. We've got to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, and nothing else. Now, some of you theologians sitting here are going, well, wait a minute. What about Timothy? Because didn't Paul have Timothy and encourage Timothy to be circumcised when he came? And the answer is, yes, he did. Ah, see, there's, there it is. Question. Timothy's father was what? A Gentile. Roman. Timothy's mother was what? Jewish. Was his grandmother Jewish? Would it be appropriate for Timothy, who has a Jewish mother, to practice circumcision? Yes. He could, if he so choose, because it was part of his heritage within them. And so he, he was able to do that as part of his worship as a Jew, because he had a Jewish father, I'm sorry, Jewish mother and a Roman father. And Paul would, Paul would be what he needed to be without violating himself, because Paul was in the same boat. He was Jewish, but he grew up in Tarsus. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 22, it says, To the Jew I became a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being under the law of myself, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. So Paul made it his personal distinction to be all things to all men, that I might save some without compromise within this. Now, as he goes on with this, he says, I didn't yield to them, but I did talk to those of the pillars of the church. And he connected himself with the pillars of the church. But it's interesting, he didn't do it as a respecter of person. Notice in verse 6, it says, What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Have you ever met somebody that name drops? I know somebody that, you know, and I'm special and all of these other things. It didn't matter to Paul that James was Jesus' brother or that Peter was the, the pillar of the church or John within that. What mattered to him was to be correct in his theology within this. 
and to share the gospel and to make sure that there was unity in the way that they were sharing the gospel within this. And so he goes to James and he goes to Peter and they rec- he recognizes the leadership. But he's not impressed with human credentials. There are some people that will get starstruck, right? So, you know, you see somebody coming in and they're like, oh, you know, Billy Graham came into the room, which would be an amazing thing because he's dead. But, you know, you'd, you'd be blown away. Oh, there's Billy Graham, you know. Or, or, or you see these people, and you, these great, great theologians. I learned a long time ago. It doesn't matter who the pastor is or who the theologian is, if John Piper came in or whoever, if they came in. They're just people. They're just people. And God may give them a big platform, but they're no better than you. If you're a Christ follower, you are a child of God, of the Most High. Same as them. You have different functions and different roles, but don't be a respecter of person, because if you start chasing celebrities, you're going to run amok within this. So he, he went to these pillars to validate the ministry. And he says to the church of Galatia, and these pillars that you're looking at finding respect for, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. The word fellowship, koinonia. The right hand and says, yes, we are doing everything in common. Yes, we are together. It's the same gospel message. We're preaching the same gospel message. There's a couple of things that we're going to work out, but it's going to work within this. And they stayed together. And so Paul was encouraged. As you go out, do all of this, but don't forget the poor. Paul is writing to Galatia, who actually gave money to the poor. Now, when you look at verse 10, it says, And only ask to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Who were the poor? You know who the poor were? The persecuted Jews in Jerusalem. Paul went on his whole mission trip and gathered money from Macedonia and from Asia and brought money all the way back to the church of Jerusalem. Now, if he didn't care about the church of Jerusalem, why would he do all of that? And Galatia, who he's writing the letter to, was part of that. Is Paul a credible apostle? Absolutely. Absolutely. The challenge I find in this is, is that we need to, to focus on what we're doing and why we're doing it. In fact, in Romans fifteen twenty six, Paul would write to the Romans, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Have you ever heard the saying, your actions speak louder than your words? Sure. There's another part of that saying. Your, your actions are speaking so loud that I can't hear what you're saying. It doesn't make sense. And it's in a negative sense. You can, your actions can be so negative that you could be pretending to be a Christian and they're not going to hear it because your actions are contrary to that witness. But Paul is saying, my actions line up with my witness within this. The credibility within this. As Paul finishes out his, his statement to these people, he, he, he does one more thing. He says, look it. He says, I am not a respecter of persons, but I do respect the people. But what I respect more is proper uh, theology. And here's what it looks like. He wants to give them an example. If you want to confront somebody, 
Don't confront them over the law and be circumcised. Confront them over their hypocrisy. So he takes a look at Peter as an example. In verse 11, 11, that takes us all the way to 21. Here's the account of Paul confronting Peter's hypocrisy. And again, he's writing to this church of, of Galatia because he wants them to understand he's not a respecter of persons and that he is, is against this idea of the law, that we're saved by grace. So he's setting, he's setting up his, his point. He says, but when Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men of James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with which result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, to me, this is amazing. The first thing that Peter does is he's compromising out of fear. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, everything was good and he was eating with the Gentiles, but I opposed him in the face because he stood condemned. Why? Because... At one point, Peter was having fellowship with the Gentiles and eating with them. But when the Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter went, Oh, I can't eat with you. I'm going to go over here with my Jews. Because I'm a Jew and I can't have anything to do with you. This is Peter. This is Peter who was with Jesus. This is Peter who preached at Pentecost. And, and, and thousands of people got saved. This is Peter, the great apostle, who Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is Peter who says, uh-oh, the Jews from Jerusalem are here. I need to go over here because I don't want them to see me with these Gentiles. Within this, we can see the hypocrisy that's there. And within that, one of the worst witnesses that, can, that we can ever have is to be hypocritical in our faith. Where we present one thing and we do another. Within this. And again, there is this great spiritual awakening. Barnabas was with Paul. There's this encouragement that's going on on all of these things that are there. And, and Barnabas was up there. Paul was up there. Peter comes up to check things out. Acts chapter 11, verses 22-26. The news about them reached the ears of the, Jew, the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They came, sent Barnabas off, and when they arrived, the witnesses of the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This is Barnabas, who would never hurt a fly. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, found him, brought him back to Antioch, and the church taught considerable numbers and the disciples were getting saved. And then Peter comes up and there's this conflict that's going on within this. And there was a tension. Question. Should Paul have just let it go? Should he have just let it go? When he saw the hypocrisy. 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Why? Because Peter was a pillar in the church. And he was acting inappropriately. But he's Peter. Don't say anything to Peter. He's the first pope. Not really, but... And it says he confronted him in his face. To eat from the Jewish standpoint, in the Near Eastern standpoint, to eat with somebody and have fellowship with them was to share in common. Why? It is super cool, the concept. Imagine you're all sitting around a table, leaning on your left side or leaning on pillows, and you all have common bowls. And you take the piece of bread and, you know, you're not using forks and like our Western culture, we have our own plate, don't touch my plate, kind of thing. And you're all eating out of the same bowl, which is freaking you all out right now. Oh, you germaphobes. It's bad when they double dip, but that's, you know. But the whole idea is, I'm eating out of this bowl, and you're eating out of that bowl, and the same food that, that is coming into me is coming into you, and we are having in common. We go to Israel, we go to, one of the things we do is we go to Abraham's tent, which is really kind of cool, and we sit around these tables and we all eat out of the same bowls. And For those that are germaphobes, I think they get forks or something, I don't know, but... But it's to have in common. Now, the problem was the culture said if you were a Jew and you were eating with a Gentile, the sin of that Gentile contaminated the food. And you eating that food, then that their sin would come into you through the food. Now, is that true? No. No. But this is what they had. They had these dietary laws. And Peter was adhering to the dietary laws. Now. I got to thinking about this. Can we fault Peter for this because he culturally grew up with this? No, he's predisposed. Again, Christianity is all new. Did he struggle with this? Yes. How do we know this? Acts chapter 10 tells us the account of dealing with Cornelius when Peter was hanging out, which is kind of weird because he was at Simon the Tanner's house, which is a place he shouldn't have been anyways if he was going to be a good Jew. And he gets summoned to go over to Cornelius' house. And in Acts chapter 10, one of my favorite verses in, in 13 to 15, my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's awesome. And, and so God's calling him to go. And it says, And a voice came to him, and, and he has this dream of the sheet that comes down with the animals and goes back up and, and, and all of this. And he's really struggling with, what do I do with this? And the voice says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I love it. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came down to him a second time. He says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Think about that. What God has cleansed, don't consider unholy. Is he talking about food? No, he's talking about Cornelius. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about people. Hear me clearly. Tonight, Jesus has forgiven you of all of your sins. He has cleansed you. You stand before God, righteous and holy, not because of anything you've done, nor anything you do can change that. 
And what God has declared to be holy and clean, we cannot consider unholy or unclean. Peter learned this lesson. In fact, he defends his actions when he goes back to the church in Acts 11. He says, therefore, God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us. After believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Yet later, Peter struggles again with the Gentiles. Do we struggle with our own ideologies? Yes, we do. We may know it here, but getting it here is hard. Peter, do you know that Gentiles are to be witnessed to and can be saved? Yes. Do you still struggle with them when you see them? Yes. Why? Because I grew up that way. So what should he do? Stop. The problem is, when he got to Antioch, he freaked out because these other people came. So Paul got into his face within this. Not only because Peter was being hypocritical, but he was leading Barnabas and the others with him. We often wonder, we say, okay, well, what happened with Matthew 18? Shouldn't he have gone to him in private and had this little private conversation? No. No. Why? There is a higher level of accountability for a spiritual leader than the average person. When a spiritual leader pulls people away and, and leads them astray, they should be confronted publicly. We know this based off of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Should be established. Well, how do we know that Paul had it established? He had Barnabas and he had the other people that were there and he was there. So he had enough. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Note, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias and doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. What happens if I sin? Well, then, then I need to deal with God. What happens if I start leading people astray? You better come to me and tell me. And the elders should pull me out in front of everybody and declare it publicly. Why? Because as a pastor... I'm called to a higher standard. And people will follow what I do. And they did that with Peter. So Paul came to him and, called, and, and said, you're a hypocrite. You're wearing a mask within this. Now again, Peter understood this. He knew his true conviction. He already had the Cornelius experience. He knew better, but he allowed his emotions to drive him. Was Paul angry at him? Yeah. Because he's bringing people astray. Was Paul redemptive? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you confront somebody in their sin, you're always looking to restore them in restoration. And I was reminded of the last time that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. What happened to him? He began to sink in the water. And that's what happens. We take our eyes off of Jesus. We take a look at other people. And we allow the opinions of other people to drive us more than, than our, our relationship with Jesus. And so what ended up happening? Well, we know that from this conflict, 
great leaders can stumble. Regardless of who they are, they can stumble. What else do we know? God's grace means that there's no second-class citizens. What else do we know? It's really hard to take a stand for the truth. It would have been much easier for Paul to just say, no, I'm not going to deal with this. But it was for the benefit of everybody that he stood up to that. Paul ends this section before he gets into the theology, setting up the theology here in 15 to 21 with this snippet that that all believers are justified through faith. How does this work? Peter, what do you need to know? Galatians, what do you need to know? Look at 15 to 21. We are Jews by nature, not sinners, from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by his works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, But Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So what does Paul basically say? All believers are justified through faith in Jesus. Hear me clearly. You can't add anything to your salvation. And you cannot subtract anything from your salvation. It is a complete work of God within this. And Paul declares this doctrine of justification, which is basically being declared right by God. And it happens within this. Upon salvation. Do you realize when God sees you right now, He sees you perfect. He sees you sinless. He sees you as as His child and and there isn't anything that you could ever do that would disappoint Him or, or, or say, you know what, I'm sorry, you blew it. We can't add to our salvation. We can't take it away. We can't change the way that God sees us. Why? Because it's all based on what Jesus did. The Jews got the law and the law was good. It was there given to reveal sin. We understand that that the circumcision was to separate the Jews, but it was just something of the flesh. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says this, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, that were in flesh are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. There was this division which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant and the promise having no hope without God through the world. You were, but you're not now. Please, do not let Satan or anybody else rob you of the joy of your salvation. You are not who you were. You are perfect. And Paul's argument is this. Your birth origin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or it doesn't matter if you're Gentile. 
You're new in Christ and a new creation within this. And he, and he said this, no flesh will be justified by the law. There isn't anything that you can do. There is no legalism that will get you into heaven. Paul was not anti-law. Fancy word is antinomial. Not anti-law. Question, do we need the law? Shake your head yes, please. You need the law. Why? Because the law reveals our sin. And I wouldn't know if I was a sinner if I didn't have law. Right? But now that I know I'm a sinner because of the law tells me that I'm a sinner, now I know I need a Savior. So I need the law to recognize that I'm a sinner so I can confess and repent of that sin and accept the Savior. But once I've been saved redeemed and justified, which is a legal term, then I can go back and understand the fact that, that God has saved me. Paul would write this in Romans seven twelve to 14, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteousness is good. Therefore, did that which is good because of the death in me. May it never be. Rather, it's a sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death, through which is good, so that through the commandment sin becomes Utterly sinful. So we know that the law is spiritual, I'm a flesh, sold under bondage. So the law keeps us in bondage until we get to that place where we say, God, I surrender. I surrender. And then God provided the solution for our dilemma. Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin from the flesh. So what does Paul basically say? I'm stuck in sin. The law tells me I'm a sinner. Oh, wretched man that I am in sin. Is there any hope? Yes. Because God sent His Son Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin, to take me out of that sin, and to make me right. And the only righteousness that I could ever have is the righteousness that is in Christ. So God takes me from being a sinner and puts me into Christ. Now, when God sees me, He sees me as His child the same way He sees His Son, Jesus. And it's salvation by faith. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of, your, not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a transition that only God does. And so within this, he's saying, look, it is not about the law. But if we, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ the minister of sin? In other words, Paul gives a rhetorical question within this. Peter must be a sinner because he's in Christ and, and he's promoting this sin because he is exercising this law-free gospel. Did Jesus really create or is he the promoter of sin? No, he's not. He's the promoter of, of grace. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have to be found sinners Christ then is the minister of sin. May it never be. Or Megenoa. 
It means that it shouldn't happen. For, and then Paul says, for if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, he says, Peter, you can't go back into the law. Because then you're saying Jesus died needlessly. Paul's saying, I, I, I can't go back and, destroy, and rebuild what I destroyed. Paul was working at destroying this, this legalism that was there. And Paul was a great legalist within this. Why? Because notice verses 20 to 21. Or 19 to 21. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. But I live by faith in this flesh. And God gave Himself. So I don't nullify the grace. Have we all violated God's law? Absolutely. But here's a question. And, and, and I got to thinking about that. How do, how do you illustrate this? Because Paul considered himself dead to the law and alive in Christ. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty for that. And Jesus died for that. So let's do this. Let's think about it this way. I go out and I rob a bank. Is that a violation of a law? Should I stand trial for that robbing of the bank? In the process of robbing the bank, though, the cops show up and they kill me. Now I'm dead on the bank floor. Rob the bank. I violated the law. I'm dead on the bank floor. Right? I'm dead. Do they take my corpse down to the courthouse? And then try my corpse. But I violated the law. But I'm already dead. And if I'm dead, then the law has no hold on me. Paul said, I've been, he said this, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. My old man is dead. And therefore, I cannot stand judgment because I'm a dead man. And I'm in Christ, which means I'm alive in Christ. And God does not judge Christ. He did at the cross for my sin. So the next time that you feel like you need to stand before a holy God and answer for your sin... Understand this. That person is dead to that sin and alive in Christ. There are only two conditions that we can have. We're either in Christ or we're not in Christ. Calvin put it this way. As long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from Him. All that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. As long as we remain outside of Christ. So what's the solution? Be in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, I'm not under the law anymore. Jesus paid for it. I'm saved by grace. And what a great grace gift it is. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us these truths in Paul. And Lord, there is just so much to unpack in these chapters and, and these verses to understand. But Lord, the, the, the big thing is this. 
We are justified by the work that Jesus did at the cross, not by our own works. We are saved by what Jesus did, not by our best effort. And we stand redeemed, justified, nothing on our account, because the righteousness of Christ has been put on our account. We are guilt-free before a holy God. And we will forever be guilt-free before a holy God because there is nothing that we can add or subtract to our salvation. What a great salvation. As we close out tonight, may we think about that and celebrate that great salvation and the great grace that You've shown us. We thank You. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand.
Jesus, for what you've done for us. We worship you. We praise you. We go out the rest of our week. We thank you for making our path straight, for being with us, for guiding us, giving us wisdom, providing for us. We worship you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.